So we've been looking at what made the church so impactful. And in our first study, we talked about the power of the early church, how it all happened, it all started on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came upon them. They were baptized with the Holy Spirit, filled with the Holy Spirit. And we talked about the significance of that and what that meant and how they continued to move and work as a group of people that were just consistently dependent upon the Holy Spirit moving and working in their life. And then last week, Pastor Tyler took us to look at the prayer life of the early church. That one of the things that made them so impactful and one of the things that that really was the, the mark of their dependency upon the Holy Spirit was that they were devoted to prayer. And he did an excellent job of taking us through what that looked like. And tonight we're going to be looking at the priorities of the early church, looking at the things that they were devoted to. So in verse 42, it says, and they continued steadfastly. I like the way the Christian Standard Bible puts this. It says, they, were, they devoted themselves to. These were the things that they were devoted to. We can say that they had a deep devotion to six primary things that marked the early church. The first was that they were devoted to doctrine, the teaching of the word of God. They were devoted to fellowship. We might call it community and just communing together. They were devoted to the breaking of the bread. We'll talk about how that is in reference to communion and really a focus that they had upon the cross. They were devoted to prayer They were devoted to worship, to praise, and they were devoted to preaching the gospel. So those are the six things that we're going to look at tonight and explore what it looked like for them and what it can look like for us to be devoted to those things, that to see... Those, how those things played a part in them being so impactful. But before we go there, I want to zero in on verse 43. Because I think verse 43 sort of sets the stage for what was happening. In verse 43, it says, Then fear came upon every soul. Again, the Christian Standard Bible, I think, is very, very helpful here. I love the way it says it in there. It says, And everyone was filled with awe. Everybody say awe. They were awestruck, in other words. The way the, 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 the Christian Standard Bible puts it is this way. Everyone was filled with awe. And then it says, and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Now, this is very, very interesting to me. Please keep that on the screen for a few minutes, all right? This is very intriguing to me because it says that they were filled with awe And then it says, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Now, I think, watch this. I think we would expect it to say and read in this way. Many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and everyone was filled with awe. Right? That's like what we would think it should read. Like they were in awe of the signs and the wonders that were going on, but that's not the way it reads. And the very fact that the Holy Spirit inspired Luke to put it the other way is intriguing to me. 
that they were, everyone was filled with awe. And then almost as a footnote, and the apostles were moving and working in many signs. But that wasn't what the awe was about. And I think the, the thing that was the, what was the thing that was filling them with awe? I think the answer is found, because we're going to see this comes up over and over and over again, is what we see in verse 44 when it says, Now all who believed were together and had all things in common. That was the thing that made them awestruck. In fact, turn to chapter 4, if you would, really quick, and look at verse 32. We see this idea again. Follow along as I read, beginning in verse 32. Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul, and neither did anyone say that of of any things that he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. There it is again. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all, and nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who possessed lands or houses or sold them and and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to to each as anyone had need. Now notice this. Turn back to chapter 2. In chapter 2, verse 44, and in chapter 4, verse 32, we read that they had all things in common. This is such a powerful statement. And I don't want you to miss this. All things in common. Really? I want you to think about this group, okay? Let's talk for a minute about the group at Pentecost. Remember, the, the apostles... There's a group of 120 followers of Jesus Christ meeting in an upper room. The Holy Spirit falls upon them. There's a sound of a wind, cloven tongues of fire. They begin speaking in tongues in all these different languages, and it's the commotion, it's the noise, it's the sound coming out of the house that draws a multitude of people. Now, it says that 3,000 got saved, Now, I don't know if that meant that there were 3,000 people there and they all got saved or there were 5,000 people and 3,000. We're talking there was a crowd of people there, a massive group of people. And they were tripping out. In fact, look back at verse 7 of chapter 2. These guys are, are tripping out at what they're hearing And they say, look at these Galileans. How is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Now, in order to understand what's going on here, you need to realize at the Feast of Pentecost, you had Jewish people who traveled from all over the Middle East to come and celebrate that feast. It was one of the three mandatory yearly feasts that happened in Israel. 
And so those who were really, really devout would travel. They would make the trek. And they came from, a lot of them, a far away place. So the, the normal population of Jerusalem in this day, in the, the time frame of the early church, was about four or 500,000 people. But it would swell to like two or three million people on the, these festivals, these feast times. So there's a bunch of people from all over the place that are hearing this. They're drawn to this house and they're saying, how is it that these Galileans, remember I told you, the Galileans, that those were the, the uneducated people. Those were the, the Jewish people that lived in Israel that were considered to be the hicks, all right? They were, that was Hicksville. You know, they weren't considered to be, you know, the, the scholars. And they're like, how is it that all these Galileans are like radically fluent in all of these languages? And it, it's tripping them out. They're like, I don't get this. I don't understand this. And it says, we hear them speaking in the language in which we were born. So these, again, yeah, check this out. These are people who were all born in these other places. Because going back even further in the time of Israel, the Jewish people had several different times in their history when they were dispersed. And they went out and they settled in all of these other areas and they made their homes there and they built their lives there and they raised their kids there and they raised their families and they had children and their children had children. So these are people that you know have been generations living in these other places. And I want you to hear, okay, about some of these places. It mentions Parthians there in verse 9. That's people that are from Persia, which is today modern-day Iran, all right? And Medes, that's the mountain area outside of Iran. And then you have the Eliamites, that's the Tigris Valley area, also near Iran. So check this out. You've got mountain people, and you've got valley people. All right? And, and, and there's a difference, right, between mountain people and valley people. They talk different. They think different. You know, in the way they look at life is different. Then it says those dwelling in Mesopotamia. That was an area that was, had a heavy, heavy Greek culture. And they were farmers in that area. So, so you have people that have been radically influenced by, by Greece and the whole Greek culture that was prevalent in that area. And these guys are hardworking farmers. So you've got mountain people from Iran, valley people from Iran. And then you've got these people that are, are from the Greek culture. They're, they're farmers. And then it says, and Cappadocia. This is Asia Minor. This is a part of modern-day Turkey that, check this out, is renowned. In that day and age, it was renowned they, for raising horses and racing horses and for producing wine. So now you have the more sophisticated crowd, you know? This is the polo cup cloud, crowd, you know? This is the, hey, let's get together and have a little bit of wine and, and you know, that type of crowd. You see, are you seeing the mixture? I mean, this is a big, big mixture here. So you have farmers and mountain people and then the posh, more wealthy crowd. And then it says Pontus, that's a Roman province in Northeast Asia Minor. 
So now you have, on this side, you have a real heavy Greek influence. On this side, you got a real heavy Roman influence. So, so in, you know, you're seeing this diversity. And then it says in Asia, that was another Roman province in the western side of Turkey. And then Phrygia and Pamphylia, also a part of Turkey. So basically, all of Turkey's covered. A lot of Iran is covered. And then it says Egypt and parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, Jews and proselytes. So you've got now Egypt is thrown in, people from Egypt, people from Libya, people from Rome. I mean, this is a radically diverse group of people. And then the last two are the most fascinating to me. Look at verse 11. It mentions Cretans. The island of Crete was off the coast of the Mediterranean, and the Cretans had this reputation. The Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. That's how these guys are described in the book of Titus, all right? That's what the Cretans are about. And then it mentions the Arabs. They were from the area of Arabia. And this, is, this was their reputation, that they were unemployed, idle, lazy, unwilling to work, unproductive, useless, and worthless people. Okay? This is a radically diverse group of people. So the early church was made up of people from several different countries, People from Greek descent, Roman descent, you have Judeans, you have the, the, which was the area around Jerusalem, they were the more educated people in Israel, and then you have the Galileans, so you have the Hicks, you've got mountain people from Iran, valley people, hardworking farmers, rich landowners and winemakers, people who had the most prestigious of pedigrees and reputations mixed with those who had the reputation for being the worst human beings on the planet. That was the early church. That was the makeup of this people. And it says, and they had all things in common? Like, really? They had nothing in common. If you really, really think about it, this group couldn't have been more different. They were economically different. Some of them were rich. Some of them were poor. Some of them were hardworking. Some of them didn't want to work at all. Some were able to sell their property to help the poor. You had people from different political ideologies. They were all different as well. Now, most of them probably didn't really like Rome, but they had completely different ideas on how to get rid of the Romans, all right? They looked different. All of them were of Jewish descent. That's why they were all in Jerusalem. But they had been born in these different places. They dressed different. They talked different. They spoke different languages. But they were all from these different parts of the Middle East. Some of them were hard workers. And some of them were the complete opposite of that. Some were single, some were married, some were old, some were young. It was this incredible mixture. And my point is that they didn't have, there, there wasn't hardly anything that they had in common. But there was one thing that they had in common that trumped everything else, and that was Jesus. That was the key. 
That they had come together and came to believe that Jesus was the Messiah that they were looking for. They had turned from their sins to their Savior. And God had begun a work in their life. And they had rallied around him. And he had brought them together. There were plenty of things. Listen. Plenty of things that they couldn't agree on. But there was only one thing. That mattered, that they did agree on, and that was Jesus. And he had changed their life. And it was this sense of unity and togetherness that was filling their hearts with a sense of awe. Like, like where does this happen? Where does this kind of thing happen? These kind of people come together from all these different places and backgrounds and just loving on one another. I mean, where does that happen? Maybe it happens sometimes, briefly, like at a sporting event. I remember going, a guy in the church took me to a Charger game. And uh, we're watching the game, had really, really good seats. His company gave him these seats. We had really, really good seats. And it's a Monday night game. I actually got to see Brett Favre play in person. And, um, but it was crazy, I mean, the crowd was just insane. And the Chargers would do something good, and people are turning around, they're high fiving one another, and, you know, just go. And, and, and this guy I did not even know, he hugs me when the, when the Chargers scored a touchdown. I'm like, what is going on here, you know? And see, so I've always been like, yeah, it's our team, they score, and they're all, yeah, it's all, you know, excited and everything. Until. After the game, they get in their cars, and then in the parking lot, it's a whole different story, right? <laughs> Everybody's trying to get out of that place, and, you know, hey, you get me in my way, and you burn on their horn, and yeah, maybe for a second it happens, an hour at a ball game. But one of the things that made the early church so impactful was their unity, was the love that they had. It was noticeable in the way that they cared for one another. And people would look at this group of people and think, how is it? They are so different. Come from all these different places, but they're dwelling together in harmony. Because here's what you got to understand. I forgot to mention this. So picture this. This is hard for us to fathom in our day and age of, I'm going to hop on a plane, I'm going to get in my car, I'm going to jump on a train. And these people walked or took boats everywhere. So they're coming like from Iran, you know, maybe like a thousand miles. They're traveling on foot to come to this feast. I mean, it took them weeks to to get there. And they all get saved by Jesus. And they're all just eyes are open like he's the Messiah. And they're like, we don't want to go home. No, we want to stay here. I mean, suddenly God's doing something in our heart. And so by necessity, the early church began to dwell communally. People who lived in Jerusalem started to open up their houses. They're probably going and trying to rent places. And so all of these people can come and they're dwelling because they just don't want to leave because God was doing a revival. God was doing a a fresh work in their hearts. But other people are watching this and they're taking note of it and they're going, this is bizarre. I mean, these people from all these different places and, and yet they are so connected and there's a unity and there's a harmony. 
And this is one of the things that so often I think is, can be missing in our day and age of the church. Because we get, we get so distracted by things that really are not that important. We get distracted by aesthetics, how things look. You know, this isn't cool enough for me. I don't like this, you know. And, and, and we get distracted by, you know, some are like, you know, it's not, it's, it's not dark enough. We need it darker when during worship. And others are like, it's too dark. And, and, you know, people get all distracted by, you know, the music's so loud. And no, it's not loud enough. And, and, and we're all distracted. And that's one of the reasons why when you walk into this place, on that wall, It says simply Jesus. Not simple Jesus, okay? Because he's not simple at all. I mean, he'll rock your world. He'll change your life. He'll turn it upside down. He'll transform it. He's God. He's the king. But simply Jesus. Because the message that we're trying to send is this. He's all that matters. All that other stuff doesn't matter. I, I love, you know, we, it used to be really, really popular. It's one of those songs I think we can bring back from time to time. But there's a song that came out of England. It was actually the church that Matt Redman, how many of you know who Matt Redman is? Matt Redman um, led worship at this church in England called Soul Survivor. And they wrote this song called We're Coming Back to the Heart of Worship. But it's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. And that song was born out of this mentality, this heart, this a thing that they saw was happening in their church, where a church that was radically gifted musically, and and people were getting so into what band was playing and, you know, the style of the music and what was happening. And, and, and you know, it's funny. <laughs> I've had this happen here where somebody would walk in and I'm standing out front and they'd say, hey, who's leading worship today? And I'd tell them. And it wasn't like their favorite. And they'd go, oh, man, you know. And, <laughs> and that kind of thing was happening there. Like, oh, you know, that's not my favorite, you know. And I wish, oh, Matt's not leading today or whatever. And, and so they just went, we're stripping everything away. We're just doing one guy and one guitar and we're going to get back until we can get back to the thing that we're just focused on. The thing that matters is simply Jesus and Jesus alone. That's what happened to the early church. That's what made them so incredibly impactful is you had these people that were focused on and in love with and caring about nothing else but Jesus. And just knowing him and getting to know him and sharing him with with one another. And so this was the catalyst of what shaped them and the catalyst of, of of what this this unity, this sense of awe that was happening, the catalyst for all of that is found in what they were devoted to. So look back at verse 42. It says, and they continued steadfastly, or the CSB puts it, and they were devoted to the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, breaking in bread 
and prayers. So there were six things I mentioned that they were devoted to. We see four of them here. Two come later. But the first is the apostles' doctrine or teachings. You see, the early church didn't just dabble in the word of God. They devoured it. They were all about it. And I know, and again, and I'm speaking to myself here. Because I know a lot of you, when you first got saved, man, that was your heart, wasn't it? Like you were just, everything was new. I mean, everything was just brand new. And you're just like, man, I can't believe this. And you'd come to church and you were just learning something new every single week. And, and it was just like, wow, you're reading your Bible on your own. It's like, I can't believe this. Or you'd have questions and, and it just was stirring in you. But for a lot of you, like myself, you've been studying the Bible a really, really long time. And you know a lot of it. And you might even hear like, oh, you know, they're going to be doing a study in this. You're like, oh, I've studied that book like so many times. We've got to be careful. And I will say this about you guys. And, and Pastor Don McClure, the last time he was here, he paid all of you a really, really good compliment that he shared with me. He says, I love coming to your church because your people are hungry. For Bible study. He says, I go to some places in, you know, Orange County, and I feel like the people are like connoisseurs. Like they're, as I'm preaching, they're critiquing, you know? It's like that's the look they have on their face. Like, well, Greg Laurie said this, or, you know, (laughs) whatever. (laughs) They're critiquing, but he says, I don't feel that way ever when I come to Calvary Vista. It's like your people are hungry, and man, I, I love that. But I'll tell you this. I'll tell you this, I saw in all of you that taken to another level when we started meeting again after all that time off from COVID, that, that there was, you guys missed being here, you know? You missed the gathering like this. And so when we were able to come back, there was a sense of like, come on, bring it, you know? There was a sense like you could just see it. See it in the worship. And, and, and you know, Jack Hibbs and, and Tom Hughes and I were talking about this right before the Prophecy Conference started, how we said, you know, prior to COVID, we sort of felt like with the, the church that a lot of people were just kind of going through the motions, but no more. And I just want to say this, because I, 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 I sense that, you know, no, no more. But let's never go back there. Let's just continue to be asking God to just fuel within our hearts a sense of hunger for his word. So these guys, they, they, they continued, it says daily, look at verse 46, in the temple and from house to house. So it was day to day. That they were getting together to study the word of God. It wasn't just a once a week routine, but it was a sense of just, man, day. And these brand new babes in the Lord just couldn't get enough. In Joshua chapter 1, Moses, or Joshua said this to the people. This book of the law, this is what God had told Joshua. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth 
but you shall meditate in it day and night, that you may do, observe to do according to all that is written in it, for you, then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. It's the idea of God's word being downloaded into your very heart and soul and mind. John Corson used to say, a Bible that's falling apart usually belongs to a person who isn't. It's falling apart, not because you left it on the car and drove off and it fell. Not because the dog got a hold of it or your kids ripped it. But it's falling apart because you've been devouring it. You've been writing all through it, reading it so much. They devoted themselves to the Word. And that's why here at our church, we always give a priority to the study of the Word of God. Worship is important. Activities is, is important, yes. But we give a priority to coming together around the Word of God. It's a focus in children's ministry, student ministries, here in the sanctuary, that we come together and, and we're going to spend a significant amount of time studying the Word of God. But it's also the reason why we encourage you guys personally to be people who are devouring the Word of God. I want to encourage you, you guys who work and gals that work in offices, bring your Bible to church or to, to the office with you. Sit there, sit there on your desk. You better bring it to church, but bring it, <laughs> bring it to work. Not just to be a, a prop, but to, to be that when you get a break that you want to read it. At lunchtime, you're going to get into it. You're going to look at you students. Bring your Bible to school with you. Set it, let it sit there on your desk for your science teacher who believes in evolution to look at. Just do it to bug them, all right? <laughs> Have you guys heard the, me tell the story about Daniel? The young guy, Daniel. How many of you have heard me tell that story? Is Eddie Hill in here? He's back there. <laughs> Eddie's like, he's like, yeah, I've heard that. I've heard that one like 10 times, Rob. And I'm like, yeah, but there's a lot of new people here who haven't heard it before. So, all right, true story. This is for all you guys, all right? You'll like this, though. Some of you are going to go, oh, yeah, I've heard that story. But it's, it's, I love this story, so I'm going to tell it. <clears throat> true story. Eighth grader named Daniel. Eighth grade science class. First day, teacher says, I, my goal this semester is to convince all of you who believe in creation that that is not true. Flat out. Can you imagine that? That's the same. Same as eighth grade class. It's my goal. Well, there's one kid in there, Daniel. He was a believer in Jesus. Brought his Bible to school. He'd set it there on his desk. And they go through the whole semester and every paper, every project, every discussion. Daniel's refuting his teacher just constantly. Driving his teacher nuts. And by the end of the semester, the teacher had convinced a lot of the students that creation, God creating the world wasn't true, but not Daniel. So on the last day, he decided, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just kind of make a mockery of this Daniel. So he says, Daniel, 
He says, you still believe after this whole semester that God still created the world, don't you? And Daniel said, yep, I do. He says, okay, well, I'm going to give you an opportunity to prove to us that God is real. And the teacher took an egg out of his desk. He says, Daniel, what is this? And the teacher said, an egg, sir. He says, that's right. He says, here's what I'm going to do, Daniel. I'm going to pray. I mean, I'm going to take this egg, and I'm going to drop this egg, and I'm going to ask you to pray to your God, for God to prove himself, that if he's really real, that when I drop this egg, that it wouldn't break when it hits the floor. And Daniel said, okay. Daniel stood up, and he prayed, dear God, I pray that when my teacher drops that egg, that it would break into a hundred pieces on the floor and that my teacher would drop dead. (laughs) In Jesus' name, amen. (laughs) His teacher looked at Daniel, looked at the egg, looked back at Daniel, (laughs) looked at his egg, walked over to his desk, opened up the desk, put the egg in the desk, (laughs) and said, class dismissed. (laughs) True story, I am not making that up. That really happened. And here's the cool thing. Several of Daniel's classmates that year, because of that, because of his stand, they started talking to him about his beliefs and they ended up becoming followers of Jesus. Isn't that cool? Devouring the word. You know, we're told in Psalm 1, I think this will be on the screen. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. So in other words, blessed is the person who's not tied to ungodly influences. But then it says, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. His delight is in what? The word of God. And he meditates on it. And the, you've heard this before, but the, the whole idea about meditation is to chew on something over and over and over again. It's literally the idea of what happens when the way a cow eats. A cow, you know, it, it, it chews. And it swallows, but it has several stomachs. And so what it does is it brings it back up again, what it, what it swallowed. And it chews on it some more. And then it swallows it again. And then it brings it back up again. And it does this several times. That's how chow, cows you know, eat. I know it's gross, but, but that's the idea. But in meditating, I'm bringing it up again. So you spend some time with Jesus in the morning. You write down, you journal what he's speaking to you. And then at lunchtime, you bring it up again. At break time, you bring it up again. When you have opportunities, that you bring it up again. That's, that's meditating on the word. And notice he says, the, the, the blessed person, the blessed man or woman, is he, he delights in the law of the Lord and he meditates on it day and night. And then here's the effect. And he shall be like a tree planted. We're talking strong. He's planted by the rivers of water that brings forth fruit 
in its season. He's fruitful. She's fruitful. His life is making an impact, in other words. Whose leaf also shall not wither. They're not dying, but they're, they're, they're being fruitful. They're vibrant, in other words. And whatever he does, he shall prosper. The person who is devoting themselves to the word of God is planted, fruitful, vibrant. And people are taking notice. Go, man, what is your secret? What is it about you? That is so different. But notice, verse 4, it says, but the ungodly, they're not so, but they're like the chaff which the wind drives away. In other words, they have no stability. And we see that all around us, don't we? People that are going all over the place. People that are freaking out. There's no stability in their life. Why? Because they're not anchored to anything. They're not planted in anything. So the Christian who's being impacted by the word of God and taking that, their, the nourishment from the word and forming their worldview from the word of God is a person that is, is an anomaly today. They stand out today. They're different. So the early church, they devoted themselves to the word. Secondly, they devoted themselves to fellowship. That word fellowship is an interesting word. It's koinonia in the Greek, and it literally means to share in common. It's a partnership. It's a communion. It's a broad word. You know, baseball season's starting. Go Dodgers. And, uh, <laughs> and people can get together and they can, you know, hey, we're going to watch the game. And they are having koinonia. They are. But it's worthless. I mean, even if, you know, you're a Dodger fan, it's worthless. It's a good time, but it's of no eternal value and connection. It's not really building any lifelong, eternal community. It's not doing anything for us spiritually. The koinonia that the early church experienced was sharing in common their need for Jesus. That's what they were sharing in common. What Jesus had done in their life. So can I encourage you, church? You know, I love... What happens in our courtyard on Sundays? Man, I had a few people that came up to me on Sunday like, thank you, Pastor Rob, for opening up and you know, doing this again. And, and I walked out there after uh, second service, and it was just packed. And saw a bunch of you just sitting around talking to one another. And, and I just, I love that. But can I encourage you, if you're not already doing this, don't be afraid to ask somebody, hey, how you doing? Anything I can be praying for you for? Don't be afraid to ask. Hey, what'd you get out of the message today? I encourage you. And if they say nothing, then <laughs> come talk to me. Because <laughs> that means I didn't do my job, you know? You know, it's, it's, I encourage you, ask each other. Hey, tell me your story. Tell me what God has done in your life. Guys, that's fellowship. Listen, and and don't get me wrong on this, okay? Talking about sports, talking about politics, talking about the serve, talking about all of that is fine. Nothing wrong with any of that, but that's not fellowship. That's not fellowship that builds anything inside of us. The reason why the church, the early church was on fire 
was because they were doing what the book of Hebrews talks about. They were stirring one another up to love and good works. When they got together, one of them would come and they'd kind of be down and they'd start talking about what Jesus was doing and it stirred them up and they left on fire. They left charged. But that only happens when real fellowship is taking place. Now, some say, I don't need that. Man, I've been walking with the Lord for 25 years. I'm as strong as a redwood, spiritually. You know what's interesting about redwoods? You know the thing that that makes them so strong? You drive along the coast of of, uh, California and see the big redwood trees along the coast there, and a lot of them, they're windblown because it gets real windy, and their branches are all folded like this. But you know what's interesting? You never, ever see a redwood tree standing by itself because the strength of the redwood tree is in their interlocking root system. That's what makes them so strong. That's what makes us so strong. That happens as we fellowship together. That's why we are committing ourselves to these circle groups that we're doing. That's why we've committed ourselves to home groups and in our men's and women's studies of that, that time. That's why we say this, we learn in rows, but we connect in circles. It's in those circle times that we stir one another up. So get connected. We're living in radical times, times where there's pressure, there's busyness. Our leadership team met on Monday night and we're talking about, I said, hey, what are you guys hearing in your circles of influence here in the church, people that you know? And they said, man, everybody is, is just worn out. People are stressed out. People are concerned about where we're headed in, as, a, as a state. And people are concerned about the economy. And, and, you know, when we get together, you know what we're to do is we're to help each other get our eyes off of the vertical and get back onto the, or me, off of the horizontal and get back onto the vertical and get our eyes on Jesus. That's fellowship. So that was attractive, to these people. So they committed something. They were devoted to the word. They were devoted to fellowship. Number three, they were devoted to breaking of bread. And most commentators and Bible teachers agree that this is a reference to the sharing in communion. And the idea was that it was the celebrating of the Lord's Supper, taking partaking of communion together. And they saw the importance of doing this constantly. And we could say and put it this way, that they had a radical emphasis that they kept coming back to on the cross. Because these were people, think about this, that were coming out of what I would call performance-based acceptance mentality. That in Judaism, under the law, they, they, this is what they had been taught. In order to be accepted by God, you have to follow these commands. And not just the Ten Commandments, but all the law of Moses and all the books that had been written. And so they lived in that type of performance-based acceptance mentality because the law said, this is how you're accepted, you do. But the cross said, this is how you're accepted, it's done. Jesus said it's finished. So they constantly found the need to remind themselves of that, to focus on the cross because the cross is also the great equalizer. We're all the same at the cross. doesn't matter how rich you are, how poor you are. doesn't matter what your background is, your education. None of that matters. We're all sinners in need of a savior. We're all sinners who've been saved by the grace of God. 
We, we come to this place of humility at the cross because we realize what Jesus did there for me, I didn't deserve that. The cross is the great equalizer. The cross is the great reminder that we were saved from hell and now we're going to heaven. The cross is also the great reminder that we were saved to be a part of a family, to be a part of a community, that we've been saved for a purpose. That's why God calls us his workmanship. So all of that comes as we remember constantly the cross. The cross puts everything in perspective. So they were devoted to the breaking of the bread. They were devoted to having an emphasis on the cross. Number four, they were devoted to prayer. And I'm not going to go on this a lot because Tyler covered this last week, but prayer was a mark of dependency of the early church. When they had a problem, they prayed. When Peter was in jail, they prayed. When they were suffering persecution, they prayed. And I love that, that they didn't pray, Lord, make the persecution stop. They prayed, Lord, give us boldness. Let us stand. They weren't praying, hey, this is going crazy. This thing's going on in our world. Lord, shake it different. They're saying, Lord, give us confidence and boldness to stand. Prayer. Because prayer is powerful. In fact, two, two things really quick. How many of you are a part of our week of prayer and fasting? Okay, a lot of you. Remember I mentioned several times that week to be praying for my friend Sandy Adams' son, Zach. You guys remember that? We were praying for Zach and praying for Zach. Zach was a guy in his mid-30s that had a radical reaction to COVID. He actually went into a medically induced um, coma, was on a ventilator for 55 days. They were saying there's no way he was going to make it. Well, three weeks ago, Zach got out of the hospital. He's now home. Not completely healed, but he is doing incredibly better. And Christians all over the world, including you guys, had been praying for him. And we prayed for him and we pleaded with God for him. And I want to ask you guys tonight. And uh, Aaron, remind me as we end, I want to, to do this. Raise your hand. Do this if, if, I don't, if I forget this. But I want us to pray tonight. There's a sister, beautiful, incredible young gal, mother of two in our church named Carrie Marcelet. Carrie has cancer. It has traveled throughout her whole body. Her body is just right now just plagued by tumors. The doctors told her two weeks ago that they basically said there's no point in doing any more chemo. There's nothing we can do. And they basically said, we're giving you weeks or months at the most to live. My wife and I visited her on Friday. And uh, Carrie, if you know her, I mean, she's just full of life. She's just vibrant. She's just always cheerful. And she was in the midst. Of, she's been that this through this whole ordeal that's been going on for years with her. Two kids that are, one's in junior high, one's in, a little bit younger than that. This week, these next couple weeks, there's a group of people in our church group of, that are just fasting and praying and seeking God for a miracle for her. And I want to encourage all of you to join in on that. I want to pray for her tonight. In fact, I'm just going to pray right now. Let's just pray for Carrie. Lord, 
We lift up Carrie to you tonight. And God, we believe in the power of prayer. We believe, Lord, that you are the great physician, that nothing is too hard for you. And this cancer, that's nothing. And Lord, I know that you have given, or Carrie just feels like like you've given her a word that you're going to heal her, and we just want to believe that, God. We want to embrace that. We want to just come to you tonight and just pleading for mercy upon this dear sister, that you would just completely heal her, that you would move the cancer out of her body, that you would take all those tumors out, and that you would do a work of healing by the power of your Holy Spirit. We thank you, Lord, for healing Zach, and we believe that you're going to continue to bring him to full restoration. So we thank you that you're the God who answers prayers. In Jesus' name, amen. So they devoted themselves to prayer. They were devoted to worship. Look at verse 46 of chapter 2. It says, so continuing daily with one accord in the temple, And breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God. This is what they were devoted to, praising God. There was an attitude of gratitude that filled their hearts. They weren't complaining about how hard their circumstances were. They were praising God. They weren't complaining about living communally. Bunch of people living in a house and sharing everything. They were praising God. And it says in verse 47, and the Lord added. Like other people are going, I want to be a part of that. Like Something's going on with these people. And I don't care if there's 10 people in the house. I want to be a part of that. Because they got something that I don't have. And that's what happens when people don't just worship at church, but they have a lifestyle that is marked by an attitude of gratitude for what Jesus has done. That's contagious. Something happens when the world sees a bunch of people living for a purpose, being united together despite all their diversity. It's contagious. People are like, I don't know what they have, but I want it. And that's what was happening in the early church. And then finally, number six, they were committed to preaching the gospel. Look back at chapter four, verse 33. It says, and with great power, everybody say great power. power. The apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. I love this. And don't miss this, okay? Don't miss this. It says... And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the law. Nope. With great power, the apostles gave witness to Christian disciplines. Nope. With great power, the apostles gave witness to being socially active. Nope. With great power, they gave witness to what? The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Because guys, that's the key to everything. I've said this before. 
We don't believe in the Bible because the, re- the or we don't believe in the resurrection because the Bible says that it happened. We believe in the Bible because Jesus rose again from the dead. Because Paul said, if he didn't do that, then all of this is vain. We shouldn't even be here tonight. We should be down at Handel's having ice cream tonight, you know? Or we should be, for those who are old enough, at some bar just getting wasted, you know? If Jesus isn't risen, what's the point of all of this? That's what Paul was saying. And so, listen, we, we don't... Easter for us, Resurrection Sunday is not an event for us. I mean, we're looking forward to it. It's going to be an awesome time. But it's our life. It's why we sing songs about the resurrection all year long. And if we ever stop doing that, somebody come and say, hey, we haven't had a resurrection song in like two months. It's a problem. It's all about the resurrection. That's what separates Jesus from every other leader, religious leader who has ever lived. They all died. They're buried. Their bones are rotting in their graves. But the tomb of Jesus Christ is empty because he's alive. And that makes all the difference in the world. It changes everything. And so because of that, there was great power and there was great grace. So as we wrap this up, here's the application for us. What's going to make the world stand in awe of us? What's going to make them stand in awe? It happens when they see people like us from diverse backgrounds in economic standings, in education, in different parts of the United States and even some of us different parts of the world, they see us in unity, they see us in love, loving one another. They, they see us, I mean, some of you have noticed this, that on every single San Diego news station last week, what were they talking about? What was happening at Calvary San Diego as they were taking in all of these refugees and the world was going why are they doing that and they've been working overtime to help these people get processed and connected to friends and relatives here in the United States Christians who when the war broke out in Ukraine, Christians here in America were jumping on planes to fly over to say, I want to help. There's brothers and sisters there that are going through it and they, they need our help. And the world looks at that and goes, why do you guys do that? It's because we're connected. Those are, that's my brother. That's my sister. And when they're hurting, I'm hurting. And the world looks at that. But here's the thing that brings us to that place. It's when we're devoted to the word, when we're devoted to true fellowship, when we're devoted to the cross, that's the great equalizer, that brings us all together. When we're devoted to prayer, 
that our lives are going to be dependent upon the Holy Spirit, when we're devoted to worship and we have this attitude of gratitude amongst us and we're not complaining about all the crud that's going on in our world, but we're like, hey, I don't know about all that, but Jesus is still on the throne. He's still coming back. He's still in control. And that's where my hope is at. This might offend some of you, but my hope is not in President Trump getting reelected, okay? (laughs) My hope is in Jesus. He's the only hope. And they were devoted to preaching the gospel. Because as Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. It's the gospel. And the power, friends, and this is why we need to be sharing the gospel, telling people, and I say this to you all the time, your sphere of influence, God has given you a sphere of influence, telling people in your sphere of influence about Jesus. Tell them about what he's done for you. Tell them about the hope you have. I mean, we have so many opportunities right now. Because people are freaking out. And if we can just not be freaking out like everyone else, they're like, what is wrong with you? Let me tell you. (laughs) Jesus. It's not wrong with me. It's right with me. And then you get to tell them what Jesus has done in your life. And the power, this is the coolest thing. The power is not in your ability to communicate it. The power is in the message. The value, okay? I have a check to give you. I have an envelope. I'll use an envelope. It's better. Because a check might bounce, especially if it was for me. (laughs) I have an envelope that has a million dollars in it. The value is not in who's giving it to you. The value is what's in the envelope. And that's the gospel. And just imagine, I want you just to imagine for a moment, what would happen just here in North County if all the Christians in North County said, you know what, we're going to devote ourselves to these six things. We're going to make, this is what our focus is, our life is going to be upon. We would look really different. Really different. But too often, we're all distracted and we're all, you know, caught up in our own focus on things. May the Lord do that work in us. Amen?